Hello and welcome to Doctor Who 50 Years Ago, a show that looks back to the stories that aired in 1973 and looks at the differences between then and now. I'm Ben. I'm Nick. And I'm Nick. And whilst people were watching Frontier in Space, the news in February and March of 1973 might have provoked them into certain things. Firstly, a record number of women stood in the Republic of Ireland general election, which amounted to 5% of all candidates. Women from the Irish Housewives Association banded together with sentiments such as how they are at, quote, the end of their patients trying to budget, unquote, in the face of horrific inflation, because it's all over the world. They add that minor details such as who won the most sports medals was of total irrelevance to them, which is referring to Taoiseach Jack Lynch's sporting medals in his past life. Civilian unrest here is pushing social change, as is the general feeling that the current elite in power in Ireland aren't doing the people justice. Ireland got a coalition government of two different parties after 16 years of one party power in that general election. There you are, it's miserable economics in 1973 and as we're recording in 2022, we're facing a cold, harsh winter, which is not helped by an economic crisis caused by a European war and after a pandemic. I think what's interesting about um, the amount of women coming together is, as you said, civil unrest pushing social change. When um, there is a massive divide in society, we see it time and time again that that is when the ruling parties will have disruption from people who are being disrupted, you know? And uh, so when the uh, these Irish housewives come together and they start saying some fairly grounded complaints, that is obviously going to start pushing people away from the current ruling elite. However, the fact that it got a split vote is interesting. They weren't able to completely oust the current ruling party. They were simply able to do a slight disruption. And I wonder how much that coalition government was actually that effective. Because uh, you're not able to get as many of your ideas through in a coalition. Um, I, th I think what this sort of news story shows is as well um, that if people can't make ends meet, People who would normally be politically um, not interested, um, apathetic, that's the word I was searching for. Um, people who would be politically apathetic. Uh, a cost of living crisis is the perfect thing to radicalise people, even the most unsuspecting people, say housewives back then. You wouldn't think necessarily would take an interest in politics, but now if you can't make money, uh, now if you can't make your ends meet, well, that will that that will interest you in perhaps perhaps you can run the country better than the current elite because they've run it into the ground. Mm. Another example I'm going to pluck out of the air is um, bodily autonomy. Um, 1972, I think, saw Roe versus Wade in America sort of decriminalising abortion, mm. and then I'm going to yeek it fast forward to 50 years later when the Supreme Court decides actually, nah, 
One film that we see around this time in 1971 is Stanley Kubrick's A Clockwork Orange. And in that film, um, everything's sort of decayed and dystopian. And we see that the youth are starting to get more and more violent. And this, um, uh, the divide in social class in that film is driving the government to do ever more barbaric things in order to crack down on the lower classes and so it's interesting that that sentiment is reflected in what's happening here civil unrest pushing social change in a clockwork orange the government fights back uh, in real life as it were um, social change managed to eventually keep going we do see more women standing um, throughout the 70s and 80s. Political enchantments and disenchantment ebbs and flows like the tides controlled by the moon on which a penal colony resides. The political socio-economic situation is not great in Britain either. A hugely contentious policy to tackle inflation comes into force, which puts a limit on the amount of pay rises workers can have. The government in 2022 is arguing about the impact of public sector pay rises, saying it will mean inflation will get baked into the economy. The policies in the 1970s are proven incredibly unpopular and of course lead to large amounts of strikes that define the decade somewhat. Lack of energy too in 1972 and 2022, strikes causing supply shortages, Disrupting companies and schools, a portent of things to come in Britain with December 1973's Free Day Week brought in to, pervert, brought in to preserve fuel and prevent the economy crashing. The circumstances between 2023 and 1973 are not identical and government policy in other areas affects pretty much everything else, but it's still notable that they're clamping down strongly. And also during this, on February the 27th, the first nationwide strike of civil servants in the history of the UK took place for 24 hours, which is about 280,000 employees, which included customs officials, which I've put in brackets. Hi, Carnival of Monsters! Um, yeah, it's kind of ironic, um, after spending uh, the last 12 years in power, saying the opposition will take us back to the 1970s that the current government in power has literally took us back to the 1970s. An early 1970s before the European Economic Community, in fact. Yes, yeah. Um, yeah, the parallels are, are quite striking when you lay it out as you've just done, Ben. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and again, as we previously mentioned in the further article, America goes back 50 years in terms of bodily autonomy and politics around in that as well. Um, ultimately, these are the things we, we point out with some chagrin and deep horror here on Doctor Who 50 years ago. What's interesting in Carnival of Monsters is that the workers at the beginning, you see one of them uh, run off and he gets shot down. We're not seeing the working class being portrayed in a... You know, they're not being portrayed as lazy. They're not being portrayed as um, negligent or stupid about the world they live in. They're being portrayed as oppressed. And if we look at the portrayal of the Time Lords 
in uh, The Three Doctors, they're not portrayed as the people who know everything that should be going on and are, you know, the, the brilliant arbiters of truth. They're portrayed as a bit hapless and stupid. It's interesting that nowadays the, the government are saying, oh, if this group goes on strike, they'll lose the public support. If these people do this, they'll lose the public support. What we're seeing in 1973 and 1972, when these, you know, strikes will start to define the decade, as you said, but we're not seeing the workers being portrayed as negligent scum. And I think that's a very interesting thing because it sort of disproves the current government's point of if people keep going on strike, they'll lose the public support. It's not what we see historically. Mm -hmm. Although I'd argue, and, and this is a very minor argument, that in culture it can be somewhat pastiched. And I'm thinking, for example, the Straubs is single part of the union, which comes to define the decade also. I always get my way if I strike for higher pay. Is one of the lyrics I'm thinking of. Hmm. Well, that is interesting. Um, I guess there are people who are going to be sneering at the strikers. I remember it was a thing, come fly with me. Um, uh, there were jabs at um, striking workers as well. Um, so people are annoyed by disruption, but I wonder how much a lot of people are going to be annoyed at the institutional class divide. And how much of it was baked um, by later political developments, such as um, Thatcherism and neoliberalism, mm. um, which is where I'm thinking those those comments came from, come fly with me, which is uh, something I wasn't expecting to talk about on this <laughs> podcast, <laughs> to say the least, but we have twice. So there, we shall fly back to America and sorry, folks, the news is a bit British and Anglo-centric, but history is written by, by the winners and all that. In March, three things around President Nixon happen. There's an expansion on executive privilege, making the US presidents and staff immune from having to testify or answer questions about White House events while in office, which applies to former staff members as well. Hmm. Three days later... Nixon commented that he would not allow the FBI to turn over its files to a congressional special committee on a hotel break-in during the election the previous year. Hmm. And then he goes and does something stupid like have a private conversation in a room he bugged, suggesting he's <laughs> obstructing justice around said break-in by getting his staff to pay money to the burglars in return for their silence. A Doctor Who story with political intrigue in it is transmitted when the political intrigue of America in the second half of the 20th century is about to go a bit wild over a hotel called the Watergate. What I like about this in Frontier in Space is that the President of Earth and the Emperor of the Draconians, they're portrayed, I think I'm right in saying, fairly nicely that they, they seem willing to listen to people and even though they're not really on board they're still the ones vaguely on the side of the doctor and joe they're trying to get to the truth and they're standing up to general williams and the draconian prince who just wants to say oh let's uh, let's mow him down 
there's there's certainly a, a, an aspect of primus inter pares um first among equals um with those two roles in that they're only so good as the people around them and if the people around them are clamoring for war or being less than intelligent then that's going to bring the earth president down and as we see leads to opposition leaders um i'm thinking of the colonel sanders type figure in episode six um clamoring for war mm. As interesting as well, the the Earth president, as you say, she's depicted as being broadly quite good in this. That um, the, the he makes reference in the General Williams to um, the legislature. I, th I think do they, do they call it the Congress? Um, did he call it the Congress? Um, saying that they would stop uh, the president, or, or they would force the president to go to war even if she didn't want to. So politicians as a whole they're sort of being depicted uh negatively aren't they uh, the, the general like your mps or your congress members are um they're they're quite happy to go to war or whatever but the president herself is depicted well and it and it shows that the, that the president is fairly weak which is interesting right? probably post watergate you might uh, the the serial might have flipped the roles and um switched it from present to being too strong and evil and then the, the congress being the good guys in other news a warning is issued in a report out of the university of sussex about computer fetishism it says that while computer models can be used to examine the world they cannot be endowed with a validity and power it doesn't possess and that what comes out is only going to be as good as what goes into it um, think about the thousands of times that various doctors in Doctor Who have called computers dumb, unfeeling machines, and you get the picture. And also my favourite four-partner story, The War Machines. In other news again, an odd tribunal is thrown out of court because the claims were lodged too late. The accused is called one of, quote, the randiest men in town, unquote, and is said to have had 11 secretaries in two years, although he denies the allegations, saying he's married, and that one of the secretaries was with him for six or seven years. Um, I, I guess it's just uh, a little interesting that uh, the judge, I presume must be the judge, um, quote there, of randiest men in town, just sort of going, laughing and laughing, going, oh, 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 he just gets on with those things, doesn't he? Ah, oh, he's such a laugh, ha, oh, that's sort of how I read it, the tone of it. So um, I guess we've sort of come along some distance then in terms of uh, gender politics, I suppose, gender equality. Well, no, no. I, I would well, we don't know that that's what the judge was saying. The judge threw it out on a technicality because the claims were, there was like a statute of limitations or what, whatever the equivalent is in civil suits. Um, what's interesting is the the man who had the complaints against him says that he didn't want it thrown out on a technicality. He wanted the ability to actually defend himself publicly. So he wanted to try and make sure that this this title of the randiest men in town didn't actually follow him around. So what's interesting is also that, he, you know, it's... It's moderate. You could argue, <clears throat> you can argue some sexism there, but he doesn't want a sexist label attributed to him. 
so therefore it's not a laughing matter to him. He takes the allegation very seriously, according to the Times coverage. Finally, a group of flat dwellers in London point out that rents could go up even higher and that the government's policies to mitigate it won't be enough. A member of Parliament says that the nature of the people of London is changing and becoming transient, with people living in flats paid for by their firms and a, quote, social vacuum in which people eat and sleep, but in which people do not feel they have any roots, unquote, is taking hold. A bit more societal change for you to discuss there. Well, that quote, again, people from 50 years ago being very prescient and uh, a trend that's only got more noticeable, I'd say. Uh, this whole people, as I said, uh, not feeling like they have any roots to where they live. Um, that's very prevalent now, isn't it? And um, the sense of community has really eroded away in the last 50 years. Yeah, it's interesting uh, to see quote there where they thought, oh, this is some phenomenon that was a big deal then. And it's like, it's only got worse. So it's, it's interesting that people can identify the issues, but can't seem to do anything about about it. Well, that's very frontier in space, isn't it? The doctor knows what's going on from the start, but isn't able to get through to power. And that was the news. And now we shall get into the themes of Frontier in Space, which we've referred to quite a few times in the news. Um, the first one being about future politics. Um, I took down many quotes from episode one because there's loads of them. Thanks, Malcolm Hulk. Um, firstly, um, the quote that government's busy passing memos at each other. Also, we see future news reports of the Arctic areas are open. The family allowance is increased for those who want new homes in basically less than habitable areas, which depicts another slightly dystopian earth of overpopulation and um, enticements for living in places like the Arctic. Um, well, I, I think that could be sort of interpreted either way, couldn't it? Um, it's a bit difficult to tell whether or not that, that could potentially be considered, as you say, a bit dystopian, or it could be considered all social progress is being made as though like um you know we, we the government wants people to go out and live on the arctic so they're giving incentives to go do that um and it's sort of quite a futuristic idea to go that especially back then to go live up in, in like the north pole um so i i don't necessarily think it's a dystopian idea i suppose with now, the 50 years that's gone by, it looks a lot more grim sounding, doesn't it? Because of, we, because of our knowledge of climate change, which at that time was relatively primitive compared to now. Mm. Um, I, I mean, I'm aware that the in a few serious time, a couple of serious time, we're going to talk about a lot of environmental stuff. But even then, that, that seems to come more from an angle of um, pollution as opposed to climate change. Well, the actual quote is, family allowance increased for those who want new homes in less than habitable areas. I mean, to an extent, it's interesting that they're offering these um, incentives. But it's uh, what's interesting is that they've taken away a right and 
their incentive is just giving back the right that we took away, but not entirely. The family allowance is increased. You may now have two children as opposed to one, which we said earlier. So that's kind of an interesting jab at, um, at big empires. Uh, we're going to take your rights um, away, and then we're going to give them back to you sometimes if you're good. I guess the most significant thing, if we're going to talk about the future politics um, being shown here, is that it's obviously the, the president of Earth is a woman, and it's addressed as Madam President. Um, what do we think how that shows, uh, what, what that message that's trying to portray to the audience? What's interesting about that to me is that Malcolm Holt made a point of making sure that she wasn't the first female president of Earth. And that comes up in every behind-the-scenes thing that you read. He was told, make sure that the president is a woman. And he said, okay, that's fine. But I'm not going to make it too big a thing. And if we look back um, in 1965... Was that when the Daleks Master Plan came out? Which is... Uh, yeah, I think so. Yeah, that's the other big um, Doctor Who serial, uh, however many parts that is, 12 parts. Um, in that, Sarah Kingdom is portrayed as, oh my god, it's a lady soldier. And just before she's introduced, we have all of this, ah, Kingdom will know what that is when Kingdom gets here. They, they don't say like her or Sarah or Miss Kingdom or whatever. Yeah, like, it, there's a it's big very specifically. Yeah, it's, it's very specifically degenderized for the reveal, which is, yeah. I presume, a nation exploit. Yes. So what's good about this is that there is a drive to make it normal. It's not supposed to be a big thing. There's not like a big orchestra sting when uh, we first pan over to the female president of Earth. Malcolm was like, yeah, I'll make her a woman, but it's going to be normal, okay? It's not going to be a thing. And that yeah. is a bit of a feminist victory. Hmm. And, and not only that, I believe um, the actor or actress in, in question is Polish. Well, she doesn't seem Polish, so that's... Yeah. Maybe behind the scenes that mattered, but it doesn't come across on screen. She still does receive pronunciation. Yeah. Hmm. Uh, I think just one little note to say that where well, I think it shows its age a bit to a modern a viewer anyway is um, the present Earth is still like she's uh, as a woman. She was it. They they show her having um. Was she getting like a hairdresser or, or something like that when um, the doctor oh. and Joe get kidnapped by the or or, or the base yes. there and gets assaulted by the ogrons? And it's it's a bit like oh well I mean yes she's a woman but that doesn't necessarily mean she's going to be having like a manicure pedicure and and a hairdresser while in her office at work. But That's there we interesting. are. Um, Indeed, she, she, it, it's more portrayed as stress relief at that point because we, we keep talking about the tensions of of war and diplomatic relations. It's interesting because I read that bit as a 
class struggle where when she's being told these big things, she's I, I, I thought she was having like a massage. It's like someone's massaging her head and her hands. Um, okay. So I wasn't I mean, I, reading I, I it as a like a she's a girl thing. I read it as a hey, pass me another grape, Jeeves. Uh, hey, what's going else on in the world? Hey, there's funny little people have got themselves in trouble again. Ha ha. Okay, it's interesting. It just to me it seems a lot because she's surrounded by women as well. No. It just seems very no. more looked more feminine than it would be if they'd done it with a man. If a man had been the president of Earth and this and they. I absolutely agree. I think it is perhaps a problem of my 2022-2023 vision of the story. Perhaps somebody at the time would have read it in a more, um, like, gendered way. Uh, we also see that, um, you know, that there aren't many female characters in this story, and most of the male characters are warmongers. Which is a very um, obvious gendered split. They basically, any time they go off Earth, it's just Joe. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I don't want to like assume the genders of the Ogrons, but I think they are generally portrayed as just um, men. Certainly, yeah. the, any of the ones that speak are um, played by men. They yeah. Speak. The male voice. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm sure Big Finish has dealt with this in their own inimitable fashion. Mm. One element that does suggest a more positive, uh, maybe perhaps societal development, is there's a, 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 a there's a black man who is the newsreader, and it's totally unremarked upon. It's in the background. Mm. It's not a big deal. No one makes a big deal out of it, and. This was from a time period when, as I say, your newsreader on like the six o'clock news or something, that was a, a very trusted person. So to show that society had progressed to a point where um, people were quite willing to have someone from an ethnic minority or background or from a black background to be that trusted individual reading the news and it's not remarked upon, it does show progress was being made and it, mm. it's. It's good that, uh, as again, Malcolm Holt, much like with the president of Earth, he, he's not, he doesn't want to make it a big deal that he's showing that the future Earth has made progress, social progress, because you wouldn't remark upon it in 500 years' time. You'd like to think that whatever, all the petty squabbles that we have going on now will be well, well above that by then. Mm -hmm. I think it's interesting that, I mean, I know this is Malcolm Holt, who is, you know, essentially just Karl Marx reincarnated, but at the same time, he does see that trajectory. This portrays the future very, very positively. So it's interesting that its message about the future is not only will we have um, multiculturalism in the future, we will all be happy that there will be multiculturalism in the future. We won't even remark upon it. That is the same message put out by Star Trek um, in the 60s. Um, so that is an interesting little counterpoint. Once we get to the 1977 Star Wars film, we see people of all races going around. And it's not... I would say that in that film, you don't really have, like, very obvious racism. 
like you have all these various um, creatures coming together and they're just sort of there. I mean, I guess you could say like Chewbacca is like strong, but like, you know, he doesn't really get slurred except by Princess Leia when she calls him a walking carpet, which I guess is like horribly, horribly racist if you don't mm. take it as a funny joke. Um, yeah, the, the only other the only other example I I care to mention is is the droids being refused to be served in the cantina. Yeah, we I don't serve their that. kind here. Yeah, I, apparently that was put in because George Lucas wanted some weird form of racism or something like that. Uh, mm. uh, and, and you know, yeah, it's interesting that it, you put it doesn't feel much like a comment. It doesn't feel like a commentary, though, that, that because, as you say, it was put into such an afterthought. It doesn't feel like a commentary on, you know, um, the the signs you'd often used to have back then, wasn't it? Saying, like, no coloured sort of thing. Like, mm. Mm. And besides, um, that was all a very long time ago in the galaxy far away. <laughs> um, but interestingly, that you bring up about how Malcolm Hobbit is showing that it's going to be a nice, happy, fluffy, utopian future... Because then you've also got a special security act um, where it, it, everyone gets sent off, shipped off to the lunar penal colony, which I thought was actually very, a very scary, scarily prescient way of um, thinking about Guantanamo Bay. Uh, mm. This is 30 years before Guantanamo mm. Bay, and yet it's actually got Guantanamo Bay right on the screen there, just on the moon. Um, yeah. And we're kind of supposed to... Go on. Or if you want to be equally grim, the satellite pictures are very open and very out there concentration camps, I'm thinking, in the western provinces of, provinces of China, mm. the Uyghur Muslims. What? The, yeah, it's interesting that you mention the lunar penal colony, because they're kind of supposed to laugh at the old man who says um, that the basis of his uh, barter is that once the peace party takes over, then you'll receive a full pardon. And it's like, well, obviously you're, you're not going to. You're deluded, old man. You don't know what you're talking about. And, like, is, is that Malcolm Hulk sneering at dumb revolutionaries who don't know what they're talking about? I mean... I, I think it is. I, I think Malcolm Hulk is, is depicting quite a plausible... I mean, obviously, it looks a bit wonky to present day now, with your 50 years on sort of thing. But it, it, if you try and think about it conceptually, the future is depicted, um, albeit maybe not the fashion sense. Uh, it, I think it's quite a plausible future um, in terms of how the society is supposed to function. And... Mm. Um, it much as essentially is a commentary on, I, I guess, our the size society existed then and where he thought Malcolm thought it was going is we we sort of we've got Guantanamo Bay or you know we have the um, detention centres for um, refugees or asylum seekers and it's like mm. so we, we we to most of the world the sort of society you have in Western Europe or North America is is utopian but actually. It's really not in terms of like we've got most people have an okay standard of living, but we shove all our problem people into a box somewhere, like you know, a conceptual box somewhere, and then we don't have to look, we don't have to think about it. 
lovely stuff you know so it's like here well these are all the troublemakers the problem makers that don't quite fit in with society at whole or a bit a bit too deviant to the, just have them floating around all right just bung them up on the moon move yeah. on to the final final bit within the future politics theme and that is the um serious four getting dominion status which is akin to other british empire colonies in the post Suez world um the example i'm bringing up is um british honduras which became self-governing colony in 1964 and renamed itself belize in 1973 um and excused the general's um loaded 1973 language of tin pot colony decolonization basically being reutilized in a space science fiction term there well i I suppose as well it it gives the an idea that perhaps earth is a bit on the wane as a power doesn't it um it can't even um exercise power over its colonies anymore now it's given dominion status uh, very much in a terminology that british people at the time would understand um yeah, I, I think it shows that perhaps it's, it's meant to show that um, Earth is very much an analogue for Britain in the present day, for the future Earth. It's a waning imperial power, um, isn't it? That's what it's yeah. to me. If I remember rightly, we get to see that kind of um, self-governing colony in Malcolm Hulk's previous iterations, the Pertwee era, literally entitled Colony in Space. And and I suppose if you think to perhaps uh, the the time how people might have thought back then, sort of like um, the fact that now uh, a sort of Asian equivalent power, the Draconians, we we were talking about how they were sort of depicted as being uh, Japanese, which uh, as opposed to European. The fact that now Earth or the UK has fallen to a point that it's now competing with a country from like, uh, an Asian country would be considered a bit they people perhaps then might back then would have considered that, uh, not ideal a bit of a fall from grace a, a sign of decline mm. so perhaps there's a bit of thinking there um, at the time Japan was having its economic recovery from the Second World War and um, mm. was pretty much out competing the West uh, economically, apart from maybe the US, uh, to the point where by the 1980s everyone was thinking that Japan is going to be the future of of the world, and that's why there's a lot of sci-fi that depicts Japan, not China, as being uh, the dominant superpower. Although, of course, in that example, Japan was given that opportunity to have a post-economic recovery, having been whacked into the ground for trying to be an empire by a different empire who lobbed a few couple of nuclear bombs at them. One thing that stood out to me is that when the master comes to the president of Earth and General Williams and he gets told, I'm not giving away these prisoners to a tin pot colony. The president of Earth is like, they're a devolved power and legally we have given them these rights. It's weirdly portrayed like he's getting through on, like, a technicality. It's not portrayed like the 
people of Sirius 4 are being respected, the people of Sirius 4 have been graciously given this, and they're, they're having to fight for their right in order to keep it against people who absolutely hate them, who still think of them in the previous way, like, you're just some colony out there. Well, no, we're not a colony. We are a devolved power, and we will be treated as such. And so I imagine, <laughs> I barely even have to imagine, that the people who had declared themselves independent were having a fight to all hell in order to keep that and be respected um, by the British Empire and by other countries around the world. You can't just leave an empire after loads of time and expect everything to go your way. The people around the world would definitely have to be um, fighting the time. Um, Wales and Scotland are always having to fight the English. I mean, if we look at Scotland relatively recently, their um, independence vote was struck down. They can't have a referendum on independence because it's not considered their territory, basically. It's like, this would affect uh, the Union too much, so you can't have it. These, they're still having to fight for, to have more and more rights. They can't leave on their own ground. Mm, uh, yeah, I suppose it's quite easy to see it as Malcolm Hulk um, having a bit of a parody or, you know, having a bit of a jab at um, the British establishment. Um, y you could almost imagine if he repainted this scene um, in term into something looking out of um, Yes Minister, where it's some, some dignitary from a foreign, uh, a former um, African colony or, or something mm. like that coming. You could you could almost imagine a similar power dynamic and uh, well yes I I I know but we yes minister but we've now uh, devolved power to them so you know, on a technicality we have to entertain these you know these people I, I could just imagine something like that so it, it, it's a it's a good little political satire there I think absolutely yeah um, and if they're happen to be quite good at football as well so be it hmm. bringing it right up to the present day at time of recording <clears throat> anyway as we briefly mentioned about um, the draconians and the humans we'll move on to the other theme that we've noted in front in space um that of xenophobia or to quote terry nations the daleks the dislike for the unlike um as we've mentioned a few times already um the draconians are seen as the, the eastern power block, so to speak, whilst the humans of Earth are seen as the western power block. Indeed, it's Barry Letts' concern of the Cold War that brings up this whole frontier in space story arc. And indeed, we've got espionage plots and counterplots, well, at least in the first three episodes of this story anyway. The way I see this story is... A fairly simple morality tale the master is quite literally making it so people are seeing what they want to see because they're blinded by fear and that's bad the xenophobia in this is baked into the systems that we see we see people right down to um, people transporting flour that they're gonna 
see things that they don't like as draconians and when they're hypnotized as Mm. such it is a fairly simple morality tale about you can't see what's really there because you're xenophobic at least that's how i read um, the metaphor of the hypnosis right Mm. down to the unflattering nicknames akin to racial epithets against the draconians Um, yeah I didn't, I didn't get the, that. The hypnotic sound, the, the hip, yeah, the hypnotic sound didn't make the human say that. That was with already within their societal mm. structure and tone, because obviously oh. uh, the, the historical outlay of there's been a previous war between the humans and Draconia exists within mm. the yeah, story. Uh, uh, what's interesting is the only time it's really commented on is the Doctor very early on. Uh, uh, I think goes to Joe, tells Joe, and it's like, yeah, this is basically a. Racist term, the paraphrase. Yeah, we're not. We're, I'm not proud of that. Moving on, <laughs> it's very yeah. And it's like, uh, but the characters carry on saying it throughout the story as well. Not the Doctor, mm-hmm. but you know the human characters, and it just sort of is a bit unremarked upon. You're just like, oh, okay. It's a good way of illustrating how it, it's that sort of racism where, um, uh, what is it? If you watch an old program or or anything that's sort of accurately tries to depict maybe 100, 150 years ago. And people will just use um, all sorts of racial terms, not not with any hatred behind them, but just like, oh, that person from said background is this racial slur. And it's like, there's, there's, not, there's no hatred there behind that. They're just That's just how it is. That's mm-hmm. the racism in that society was so baked in. And here, this racist animus towards the draconians is so baked in, it's not a big deal to just call them by racial slurs i think to an extent it's also reflective of the audience and i'm going to expand upon what i mean by that the doctor says it's a rather unflattering nickname nowadays we'd flat out just say it's a horrible racist slur don't say it this is a children's show so I'm not expecting the Doctor to say, uh, well, these people have a thing which in your time would be similar called the D word. And then we're all supposed to go, oh, oh, actually, that's kind of disgusting. Like, we, in a children's show, we have a racist slur being banded about. The Doctor says it's wrong, but it's never, as you say, Nick, properly commented on racism exactly racism nowadays we only have to look at the changing um perception of the towns of wen chiang to know how big of an issue in today's society racism is like even just like alleging someone is a racist is a massive deal like racism is like our big taboo of the moment it's it's one of the worst things you could use anyone of isn't it absolutely But in this one, using racist slurs is like, well, of course they would be. It's a, it's an unflattering nickname. It's like, to an extent, even children would see that racist slurs would be used. And I, I'm like, oh, that's kind of bad. <laughs> like, that's very reflective mm. of audience views, like well, racist slurs are just a fact of life. Um, not to bring up um, 
a certain author too much uh, named J.K. Rowling, but she includes like uh, uh, sh uh, sh um uh, a a magic phobic slur in her stories. Like Muggles is essentially used mm. as an infantilizing slur in her children's books. I mean, I know as time's gone on, we've uh, sort of taken a mm. back seat and looked at J.K. Rowling and sort of gone oh no what the hell were we doing well at least some people have um but it's interesting how baked in racism is in our society as well as the fictional society racial slurs are just a thing but well but as of how 50 years ago we've moved on is uh doctor who now so the doctor in, in front of in space he, he just sort of remarks upon it, explains the term, and then moves on, and never really pulls up any character who says it in front of him. Mm. And it is said in front of him again. Uh, whilst you move on to uh, the Twelfth Doctor era, when you've got, uh, he's got companion Bill Potts, and it is Thin Ice, that episode, the aristocrat in that essentially makes a racist remark about Bill, and the Doctor just punches him. Mm. Uh, which, so that Doctor Who very much reflects our society, and it shows that although we're very conscious that racism is still baked into a certain extent, there's now also this reaction against racism that's a lot more prevalent now than it was 50 years ago. So Malcolm Hawke was kind of going, well, yes, there is racism here, and it is a bit bad, and he's showing that with the. Um, the hypnosis device but he's not really fully committing to that is he because he's not really criticizing the characters for using racial slurs whilst now you move up to sort of a more present day doctor Who story where it's just like the doctor just flat out punches racist hmm. and, and indeed i want to move on to that point of conflict with people fearing the other so attacking the other causing war um we talk about the previous war between Earth and the Draconians, which caused, which was caused over an error of judgment over damaged ships. Um, I'm thinking ten years previous, 1962, Cuban um, Missile Crisis, and perhaps the Tonkin incident, which escalated the Vietnam War. Mm. Again, we're down mm. to that East versus West. Gordon knows what they're going to do. Oh yes, they're going to put weapons of mass destruction here or the domino effect means that the communist takeover of Vietnam is, is something that us as an empire have to put a stop to. Yeah, and I think with Malcolm Hulk, he, he um, follows through with his whole trying to make it as grey morally as he can because it's the human's fault. It's General Williams's fault for that previous incident because he's misinterpreted it um, and he's, he's essentially thought they're going to be like humans and be untrustworthy, but it's actually the Draconians have that code of honour and actually very trustworthy that they wouldn't actually attack. So even though the humans are the ones that we sort of more understand and are quite clearly analogue for the Western bloc in the Cold War, it's like they are actually the reason that this conflict could even possibly be started by the master or riled up because it's the human's fault they caused that incident uh, in the past. What I also like about that is that 
General Williams wasn't thinking on the terms of his enemy. He was thinking, these people are going to do what I expect them to do, based largely on my preconceptions of them and what someone from Earth would do in that situation. He wasn't trying to go to their level in order to speak to them that way. And so that is an interesting bit of like how humans understand each other. We understand our own cultures, and when we don't understand opposing cultures, well, that's when we start to run into difficulties. It very much reminded me that we are watching what is ostensibly a children's show, or perhaps better described as a family show for all ages. Um, so mm. you would never have this about moral about turn that General Williams has in real life. Mm. But indeed, it's still a family show, which in its 10th um, year of broadcasting is more than happy to tackle the subjects of xenophobia, a dislike for the unlike, as it did right at the beginning in 1963, whilst also talking about the politics of then and the potential future in which could happen for the human race, um, both in terms of society, economically, politically, um, and as well as technologically and scientifically. Um, and that indeed translates into Doctor Who both 50 years ago and now. Thank you very much for listening. You can find us on Blogspot, which redirects the audio version of this episode on iTunes. Leave positive comments there, it helps. If you've watched the slideshow version on YouTube, you can like, comment and subscribe. We're available on Facebook also. We shall be back next time with Planet of the Daleks. Until then... I've been Ben. I've been Luke. And I've been Nick. Thank you, and goodbye.